Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, as we open your word now, we pray that you would give us insight and understanding, that you would apply this word to our hearts, and that you would give us a growing faith and a desire for obedience. For we pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. You'll please open now your Bibles to our sermon text. We'll be looking this morning at Colossians chapter 3, verses 5 through 11, that we will begin reading uh, at the beginning of the chapter. So Colossians 3, we'll begin reading in verse 1. Here now, this is the holy, infallible word of God. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things that are above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave-free, but Christ is all and in all. This morning we're getting into the very meat of the practical part of Paul's letter, the impact that faith in Jesus Christ has on the way you live your life. And as I've been saying all along, when you trust in Jesus Christ, everything changes. Your life is transformed. It changes the things you think, the things you want out of life, how you deal with your emotions, the way you interact with others, the things you say, the things you do. Everything must change. Now, if you recall back at the end of chapter 2, Paul pointed out that rule-keeping, piling one prohibition on top of another, that was not the way to true change. This had no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. And so the natural question that follows that you're going to want to ask after you see that is, what then is the way forward? Now Paul introduced the way to change in our passage last week, verses 1 through 4, and now he builds on it here in verses 5 through 11, what we're looking at this morning. The central idea is that new behavior, a changed and transformed life, flows out of a new identity. And since you have put your faith in Christ... You have been united to him. This changes everything about who you are. You have a new identity in Christ and a new and a different identity 
and so a new life proceeds out of who you now are in him. In our passage this morning, Paul now uses some vibrant uh, imagery to illustrate this. First, we'll see how you are called to put the old you to death. Second, we'll see the reason, the power for this change, where Paul illustrates this new identity in terms of a change of clothing. And third, we'll see how this leads to unity within Christ's church, even as it crosses all the boundaries that ordinarily divide people in this world. So first, this morning is the call to put the old you to death. Before we consider the command at the center of verse 5, I want you to notice the key word, therefore. Therefore, it connects this verse, verse 5, all the way back to verses 1 through 4. And we saw in these verses last time that if you are a Christian, you have died with Christ. You have died to sin. If you are in Christ, you have been raised with Christ, raised from the cemetery of sin. You have been raised, and that means your sins have been forgiven, and you have been raised to newness of life. If you are in Christ, you have been seated with him at the right hand of the Father in heaven. Your life is hidden with Christ. And as we saw last time, Christ is your life. And when Christ returns, you will appear with him in glory. You will be with him forever. And so these verses that we looked at last time, they are absolutely packed with glorious truths about who you are in Christ. Through union with him, this is your new identity in Christ. As Kent Hughes says, for Paul, doctrine demands duty. Creed determines conduct. Facts demand Acts. And so Paul says the implication of all this, because Christ is above and you are united to him, this is your new identity, this is who you are. Now what flows out of that? You must now seek that which is above. You must set your mind on that which is above, not on earthly things. You have a new heavenly perspective on everything. And this change in your heart and in your mind, well, that's just the beginning. This changes your goals that you are seeking, the purposes for which you are living your life. And everything else that we now see in verses 5 through 11 is just more that is going to flow out of this. So in verse 5, he builds on this when he says, therefore, building on what we saw in verses 1 through 4, the change in the heart and the mind, what else follows? Therefore, put to death what is earthly in you. First, you are to no longer set your mind on what is on earth. And now you are to put even more things to death. Now, what does it mean to put these things to death? Now, before you were in Christ, you were dead in sin. We saw that back in chapter 2. You were living in sin. You could do nothing but sin. And you were as powerless as a corpse to do anything about it. But then Christ saved you out of that state. Then he said, you died to sin. You died to its mastery over you. Christ is now your Lord. You are no longer dead in sin, but sin is still in you. It is still at work in you. And so now the command is to kill that sin, to put it to death, to execute it, to exterminate it, to eradicate it. Now clearly this is not a game. This is serious business. As Christ said, if your right eye causes you to sin, Tear it out and throw it away. 
For it is better that you lose one of your members than that the whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Matthew 5, 29 through 30. Now Jesus here, he's not talking about literal dismemberment, but he was saying you need to take sin so seriously that you take whatever steps are needed to eliminate it from your life. In other words, you need to put it to death. You need to kill it. Here in this verse, Paul highlights five particular sins that have got to go because of who you now are in Christ. And if you look at this list, you'll notice that it primarily focuses on sexual sins, although it, it's, as it's working, it, it gets more to the heart. And the heart sins that are at the root of these sexual sins, they tend to be broader. They could actually lead to all kinds of sins. And compared to the second list of sins that we'll be looking at later in verse 8, you think of these sexual sins, they tend to be sins that are more private, sins that can be committed behind closed doors. And that doesn't mean that they're any less grievous, any less destructive. Perhaps sexual sin begins hidden, but it often doesn't stay that way. And even though it's hidden, it can destroy families, it can destroy children, it can destroy lives. There's a logic also, I've already said, in the order of this list as it moves from concrete actions and then gets more general and it gets to the root, gets to the heart motives. Now, the first in this list is sexual immorality. This refers to any kind of sexual act outside of the covenant of marriage. And perhaps I need to clarify in our world this, these days that this is marriage as defined by the Bible, marriage between one man and one woman. Now, the Bible says that the marriage bed is holy. The Bible has an incredibly high view of sex. It says that any sexual act outside of the faithful, committed, marital relationship between one man and one woman, that is sexual immorality. Put it to death. Second, we have put to death, sex, uh, put to death impurity. Now, this is a more general term. It includes sexual immorality, but it also includes other kinds of moral corruption that are related. Here Paul is saying you need to put to death the thought life of immorality, the imagination of immorality, the degrading language of immorality. All these related things, they too must go from your life. Third, put to death lustful passion. Now this is referring to the out-of-control thoughts and desires that lead one to ultimately commit impurity and sexual immorality. Paul is saying you have to deal with it here at the root, in the mind, and in the heart before it gets to the outward actions. And then fourth in the list, we have evil desires. Now this, again, you can think it's similar to passion, but it's more general. God created you to have desires that are for your good, for the good of others, for the glory of God, but these have now been twisted by sin so that your desires are out of control. They're often completely focused on self, on self-gratification. And so good desires have become twisted into self-centered, short-sighted, this-worldly, evil desires. So Paul says, put it to death. Put to death evil desires. The fifth and final item on this list is covetousness. And 
This is the desire for that which is not yours. That does that never satisfied desire for more. Now, some translations have greed, which I don't know about you, but I think sometimes that word greed, it seems a bit more vibrant. A greedy lust for more. And still, covetousness is technically the better translation because this isn't just referring to a greed for money, but for anything. In fact, it's this root desire for more that may lead to evil desires and lustful passions that leads to impurity and to sexual immorality. So this is the root of the other four listed here. But then Paul gives another insight as he says, covetousness, which is idolatry. To break the Ten Commandment, which says you shall not covet, is also to break the First Commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. Why is this the case? Let me just give you an example. It's fairly fairly easy to see this in the case of greed for money. What's actually going on is that you have put your trust in money to be your security, to provide you with your ultimate happiness, joy, life itself. Now, you might not self-consciously realize that's what's going on, but that's what's going on. That's what you're doing. And as Jesus said, no one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Matthew 6, 24. The same is true whenever you covet. Whatever it is that you covet, you are saying, this is going to give me Good, something that God has withheld from me. And so whatever it is, you are either elevating the object of your covetous desires over God, making a God of this thing, or perhaps you're elevating yourself, putting yourself in the place of God and saying, I am wiser than God and I know what I need. Either way, it is idolatry. You can also see that it is setting the heart on earthly things. When you have been called to seek the things that are above, you have been called to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And so you must put covetousness to death. But what if you read this and you realize there is some sin, some Desire that you still cherish, that you aren't quite ready to put to death. Even the great Saint Augustine, he admits that he had at one time prayed, Give me chastity, but not yet. If the seriousness of the call to put these things to death is not enough of a wake up call to you, then consider what Paul writes in the very next verse on account of these. The wrath of God is coming. This is a reminder of both the great sinfulness of sin and also the holiness of our God. But you say, God has already dealt with my sin. Christ has died for it on the cross. Or as Paul put it back in chapter 2, the record of your debt has been set aside. He has nailed it to the cross. 
Yes, that is true. Praise the Lord, that is true. And how does Paul respond to that in Romans chapter 6? How can we who die to sin continue to live in it any longer? How can you continue to willfully give into the very sin that Christ Jesus gave his life to rescue you from? Now, of course, if you're here today and you have not trusted in Christ, then this here where it says the wrath of God is coming, this is a warning for you. It is a reminder that the wages of sin is death, eternal death. And the only escape, the only way to be saved is through Jesus Christ. You must trust in him. Receive the grace that is found only through the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. And then once you have put your trust in Christ, there remains no more wrath, no more condemnation, because Christ has taken it on the cross. But once you know that he has died for these sins, how can you continue to give in to them? Having been united to him in his death, having received the benefits of his death, the only right response is now to put your remaining sin to death as well. As John Owen famously said, famously wrote, be killing sin, or it will be killing you. After this first list of five sins in verse 5, he gives us a second list in verse 8. And he leads into this list by contrasting the old way of life with the new in verse 7. In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Remember that before you were in Christ, you were walking in sin, you were living in sin, you were under the wrath of God. But now you are in Christ. You are dead to sin, alive to God, and a new way of life must flow out of this new identity. And so Paul highlights five more sins that must be uprooted from your life. Now this list, it focuses on sins that are more public, that are more relational. On the first list, he moved from actions to the heart motivations that led to them. This list, it's going in the opposite direction. The first is anger, which leads to wrath. Now these two terms, they're very similar are sometimes used interchangeably in Scripture. They can even be combined sometimes to mean fierce wrath. Now, we just saw that God himself, though he is slow to anger, his wrath is coming upon sinners. So while it is possible to have righteous wrath, that's not very common for sinful man. As James 1.20 says, the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. And so that's, of course, not what Paul's talking here. More commonly, we are angry because someone did something that got in the way of our ego, something that disrupted our plans, something that threatened our idols. Look at what you are seeking to defend when you are angry, and you will see what you truly value. And usually it's yourself. And we see the third item here is malice. This is hatred toward another person that leads to actions that harm that person. Often what happens is someone does something that makes you angry. And then it's repeated and it settles down into bitterness and hatred for that person in your heart. This then leads to the fourth item on the list, slander. 
Speech that defames another person's character. You tear someone down with your words. You destroy his good name. Closely related to this would be gossip. It's often the vehicle through which slander spreads. And the fifth item is obscene talk from your mouth. This could refer to obscenities, four-letter words. The point in this context is that these are hurled at another person, words spoken to curse or destroy another. You can see how all this, from the anger to the malice, the hatred to the slander to the abusive speech, it is, again, a chain where one sin often leads to the next on down the line. Paul is saying you need to get rid of this from the root to the fruit. No longer let your heart be driven by anger. No longer let your mouth be polluted with the foul speech that used to flow out of it so freely. After this list of five, verse nine opens with one more sin. It's another relational sin, another sin of the mouth. Do not lie to one another. Now, Paul is particularly concerned here with the Christian community. That's why he says, don't lie to one another among believers. But of course, it doesn't mean it's okay to lie to non-believers. Our God is a God of truth. And as he puts it in the parallel section in Ephesians, you are called to speak the truth in love, Ephesians 4.15. And similarly, Ephesians 4.25, as we read, Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each of you speak the truth with his neighbor. For we are members of one another. It's not enough to, not, to just not lie, but rather to actively put on the truth. Now, all these sins we have been seeing, they belong to the old you. They need to be done away with. They need to be put to death. And this brings us to part two that we see here. The reason and the power to put sin to death. Now, up to this point in the passage, we've been grounding everything by looking back to verses 1 to 4. And there we found a new identity that was forged through your union with Christ. The reason and the power to put sin to death flows from that, from your union with Christ. Now, as we come into verses 9 and 10, it's not that there's a new reason or a different power, but Paul expresses this union using a vibrant new metaphor. And it's a metaphor of a change of clothing. Now, the ESV translates here using the verbs put off and put on, but to make it extra clear that Paul is using this clothing illustration, we might translate verses 9b through 10a like this. Seeing that you have stripped off the clothes of the old man with his practices and have, put on, and have clothed yourselves with the new man, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Now here in these verses, Paul is also drawing a contrast. And you heard it in the way I translated, not the old self, but the old man. He's speaking of the first Adam, and he's contrasting it with the new man, the second and the last Adam, Jesus Christ, the one who succeeded and obeyed where Adam failed and disobeyed. He's saying that previously you were dressed up just like, the, just like Adam. And you were wearing the Adam uniform. You were living the Adam lifestyle with Adam practices. And now he is saying you have stripped that old man off along with his practices. Now when did this happen? When did you put him off? 
Well, it goes along with all that we have been saying about your union with Christ. It happened when you died with Christ on the cross. That's when you put off the old man. We saw the same thing in Colossians 2.11. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh. That's the same, the same verb here. The same stripping off by the circumcision of Christ. And so you have stripped off that old man, that old Adam. You have put on the new man. You have clothed yourself with Jesus Christ. And now, of course, you must live out the Christ-like practices that go along with the new clothes you are wearing. Paul says the same thing in a different way in 2 Corinthians five seventeen. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. As is so common in Paul's writings, really throughout the New Testament, there is an already and a not yet here. The already, you have already put on the new man, but you are still in the process of being renewed in knowledge after the image of your creator. This renewal is not yet complete. This process will continue for the rest of your life. Now the image, it's here, it's clearly a reference to Genesis 1, 26 and 27. The fact that all the way at the beginning, man was created in the image of and likeness of God, created to be like God. And that image of God in man was defaced when Adam and Eve fell. But the image of God was never lost. Now it is being restored as you are being made holy, being conformed to the likeness of Jesus Christ, your Savior. But notice also that Paul highlights that this is particularly a renewal in knowledge. This is the knowledge of God and His will. Because you were created to know God. And your renewal to be like God cannot happen without your coming to know God more. And so consider, why is it that it's so central that you come to sit under the preaching of the word of God? And how is it that God uses the preaching of his word and he makes it effectual that you grow in grace and grow in holiness? It's because as his word is proclaimed to you, you come to know him more. You grow in the knowledge of God. And as you grow in that knowledge, you love him more. You grow in faith. And so you also grow in obedience. And in this way, you are renewed in his image. In all this, he is making you more and more like his son, Jesus Christ. Now, this is not only the reason to put your sin to death, but it is Christ and his spirit at work in you that gives you the power to do this. And in verse 11, Paul has one more point to make about how we find unity through this union, through this union with Christ. As he writes here, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave-free, but Christ is all and in all. Here in this verse, Paul is listing all the things, all the barriers that divided people in the society of his day. There are national, racial, and ethnic barriers. There are religious barriers. There are class and social barriers. 
For the Greeks, the barbarians were not just foreigners. They were uncultured. They were despised. And here he highlights the Scythians. This is referring to people who were from the area of Ukraine, Ukraine and southern Russia. They were considered the most unrefined, the most savage of all the barbarians. They were also hated not only by the Greeks, but also by the Jews. And yet Paul includes them here in this list. He highlights them. He gives the most extreme example to say that in Christ, all these barriers disappear. What exactly is Paul saying? He's not saying that Christ absolutely obliterates all identities. He doesn't take away your ethnicities. Jews are still Jews, even though they are in Christ, and Greeks remain a Greek in their ethnicity. But the point is that the gospel, it transcends and crosses all these barriers. There is no distinction between Jew and Greek in one's need for salvation or in the power of Jesus Christ to save you. And all those who are united to Christ are united to one another. As Paul says here, for Christ is all and is in all. And so what a radical thing it was for the early church to realize that all these barriers were broken down because Christ is all in all and Christ unites all in himself. And there is only one church in Jesus Christ. And in him, all things hold together. Colossians 1, 17. Now, Paul was already living this out. You look at the end of this letter and you see that his missionary team, it was made up of both Jews and Greeks from all walks of life, from all classes, working together in harmony because Christ had united them. Along with this letter that he sent to Colossae, he also sent a letter to Philemon, which would bring Onesimus, the runaway slave, back to a wealthy householder. And he came no longer as merely a slave, but as Paul wrote, to return as a beloved brother in Christ, Philemon 1.16. And so the body of Christ today is to be a foretaste of heaven where there will be people from every tribe and tongue and people and nation since sin will be no more and all will be perfectly one because all are united in Christ who is in all and who is all. And this beautiful picture of unity in Christ here in verse 11, it connects back to the previous verses for how is this possible? This unity is only possible if each member is also putting sin to death. Think especially of the sins of anger, hatred, slander, sins that so quickly destroy relationships that can spread like a cancer through the community to destroy it. Mark Johnston writes, just as a patient dare not ignore the presence of cancer in his or her body, or a gardener ignore the weeds that are quietly taking root in their garden, so neither can a Christian or the church remain indifferent to the destructive power of sin. So serious is it that it cannot be quietly kept under control. It must be rooted out and put to death. Dealing with sin is a lifelong endeavor, a continuous process, but one, that doesn't mean you can ever be slack, that you can ever give in one moment on this battle. You cannot be content with merely wounding sin, but rather, as it says, you must put it to death. 
As you are weeding the garden, you can't just pluck up that which is visible. You must dig down and get to the root. And so in both of the lists, I pointed out how Paul included, yes, the more surface manifestations, the obvious sins on the surface in the actions, but then he also penetrated to the sins of the heart. And that's what we must do as well. Yes, we must deal with the outward sins, those actions that everyone can see, but we must also be working inwardly, praying with the psalmist, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting, Psalm 139. As you pray that the Lord will answer that prayer, sometimes with painful revelations, the discipline of your Father is always for your good, for your holiness, to conform you to his likeness, and ultimately for his glory. Shall we pray? Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this wonderful good news that you have given us a new identity in Christ. You have united us to him in his death and in his resurrection. You have, through Christ, uh, put off the old man, Adam, and you have clothed us with him, and you are making us new. And you have given us the Spirit who is at work in us, and so help us to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, putting to death that which is old, putting to death that which is earthly, putting to death that which is sinful. Lord, help us not to give up, to let up a moment in this good task, this holy task of putting sin to death. We pray, Lord, that you would be revealing to each and every one of us gathered here this morning the sins that need to be mortified, that need to be crucified from our lives so that we might live lives that are uh, holy and honorable in your sight. We pray that you would be doing this in us as individuals, in us as a body as well, growing us in sanctification all for your glory, for we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.